Hi, I'm Susan Weisbauer, co-author of The Well-Trained Mind. And I'm Susanna Jarrett, editor at The Well-Trained Mind Press. And we're talking about education for all parents and for all children in all sorts of settings. Today, we're going to talk about where classical education came from as kind of a setup for our next episode where we'll discuss where it's going. That'll be the really fascinating part. Not that this part won't be fascinating as well. I don't mean to set you off. But yeah, I, you know, Susanna, we first uh, published The Well-Trained Mind in 1999. Wow. We're coming up on the 25th anniversary. Yes, I know. Oh, and we have some exciting news on that front, so you'll have to stay tuned for that. But yes, anyway, we noticed that after we published it, a lot of curricula started calling themselves classical, which we've talked about before. They weren't classical before, but I think what has happened is classical education has become a bit of a trendy term, and that means it's increasingly a loaded term. Would you agree with that? Right, it is. It's one of those terms where it means something different to different people. Some people associate it with rigorous and academic, while others associate it with Catholic school, and even others seem to associate it with right wing. I think more and more I've seen articles in the news about classical education and kind of comparing it to a very specific, narrow political interpretation of education. Mm -hmm. I even found this example of that where an MSNBC guest was talking about classical education. I wanted to share it with you to get your thoughts. You did share it with me. <laughs> and my response was, what the, what the, what is he talking about? <laughs> so this is, and, and I know absolutely nothing about this gentleman, okay? This is Michael Harriot. He was on, um, on an MSNBC show called The Readout with Joy Reid. And um, here's what he said. The viewers should know that classical education is one of those dog whistles that means CRT is not taught here. Um, you know, when the, those people like the Moms of Liberty uh, oppose CRT, they say they want their children to have a classical education, which means like the stuff that the, the Daughters of the Confederacy want you to learn, the stuff that, you know, says that George Washington was not a slave. That's the stuff <laughs> that they... Here is a classical education. I know you sent me that, Susanna. And I think my actual response was, what the flag knot is he talking about? So uh, what's your take on that quote? Right. Well, I think that unfortunately, it's something that is not unique to him. I've seen this idea that classical education is a, some call it a dog whistle, some call it like a code word for very right wing influence in the school system. And so I think that's where it becomes really important to tell this story of what is classical education? Where did it come from? And where is it going? Even in our next episode, has it been hijacked by groups with political interests? Yeah. And I, and I think so. So for those of you who tuned on to find out what we think about Hillsdale, uh, you'll have to tune into our next episode because this episode, we want to talk about more of the, the sort of historical foundations of the term to sort of set ourselves up then to talk about what is this becoming now? So we're recording this in 2023. Obviously, the, the political divisions in our country only get deeper and wider and more pronounced. And unfortunately, the term classical education is becoming part of that division. We don't approve of this. Do we approve of this, Susanna? We do not approve of this. We have our own definition that we're trying to build and trying to uphold of this 
system of education. It's it's always so much harder to give the moderate point of view, but that's what we're going to try to do here. So we're not going to give you a comprehensive history of classical education, are we, Susanna? No, we probably, <laughs> that would take two hours and everyone would be asleep by the end. Yes, exactly. But um, we're going to try to give you a brief glimpse of what classical education looked like in different time periods so we can better understand how we got to today. So Susanna, let me ask you to start. Let's talk about classical education in shocker classical times. <laughs> right. And just before I jump in as an additional note, another benefit to this beyond just setting up for next episode is that when you look at the history of anything, you really start to, to learn more about what it is. If you study anything in university, usually the first class is the history of, if you're studying anthropology, the history of anthropology, or if you're studying accounting, the history of accounting. So it does give you an in-depth view of that. But classical education and classical times, I think at its core, what we have today of, that we call classical education is a remake of these traditions that go back to ancient Greece. Long ago. Right. A long time ago. And we have to remember that when we talk about classical times, we're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, two very different civilizations, hundreds of years, yes. not a thousand years of history. So there's no distinct classical curriculum that we could point to in this time period. There's a lot of variety over that time span. And I think one way to note that variety is by looking at even Plato and Aristotle, who had very different ideas of what an ideal elementary education would look like. Indeed, indeed. So Plato, um, I actually probably know a little bit more about Plato than I do about Aristotle, just because I've done a lot of work on the history of science. And you really have to, <laughs> you have to grapple with Plato if you're going to do the history of science, because Plato's ideas were so influential, and yet he was sort of an anti-scientist. Hmm. He was very agnostic that we could understand actual causes of things that happened in the physical world. He was always looking for causes beyond the physical world. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why he is... Okay, now I'm going to go off on a tangent. It's part of the reason why he is such a big influence on uh, the, the writings of John in the New Testament is John was a Platonist. He was very open to these explanations, which were not grounded in the physical. So Plato's influence in a lot of ways is very anti-scientific. So... He had this, his elementary education ideas in particular in the Republic were very focused on music and poetry. The reasons why he was so focused on music and poetry is that he felt that these had these symmetrical principles, which could give you a glimpse into the divine, could give you a glimpse into the ineffable. He felt that music and poetry were doors into a realm of knowledge that you couldn't really access by any other means. He was was also a fan of physical training, but more so as a way to get your body sort of out of the way so mm -hmm. that uh, it wouldn't hold you up. It wouldn't trip you up is so that you could comprehend reality on more of a mental and spiritual level. So that was Plato, which was very different from Aristotle because Plato was actually 
pretty distrustful of words. Interesting. He thought that words pointed to realities, but also obscured them at the same time. But Aristotle, on the other hand, had a very different attitude towards words. Right. So Aristotle emphasized for younger children reading and writing. Mm -hmm. That was the basis, as well as gymnastic exercise like Plato, music and maybe drawing. So between these two, you can see a lot of difference and you don't see the trivium yet. The trivium had not been invented yet. Or the quadrivium. Or the quadrivium. Those things did not yet exist. They weren't conceptualized. But one thing that they do have in common and that you would see in these Greek schools would be an emphasis on developing virtue and developing into a good human being. There are some other things, I think, too, that we would recognize in the classical education today that have roots from those schools. Oh, definitely. There's there's an emphasis on and actually, I think we should do a whole podcast about this later. There's an emphasis on memorization and repetition, which is not Mm. in order to uh, constrict or confine children, but to give them a basis of information from which they can work. There's an emphasis on there's two ways to look at this copy work or if you look at it another way, mentoring which is that you're never asked to do anything until you have seen someone else do it and you've copied them doing it. There's an emphasis on conversation between student and teacher so that you come to an understanding of what you're studying by talking about it, not simply by repeating what the teacher says back to you. What am I leaving out, Susanna? Well, let's see. There's rhetoric. Aristotle wrote the book on rhetoric. So that was a topic that was really important that we still emphasize in a classical education that you might not see in a more typical education. Dialectic, or what we might call logic, was something that both Plato and Aristotle, I believe, Mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, emphasized quite a lot. Definitely. Discussing these big ideas that we still talk about today, participating in what we sometimes call the great conversation um, of ideas that that people have held and read and studied and debated and continue to read and study and debate. But no set curriculum. No set curriculum, no. And that continues on through the Roman period. Mm-hmm. They definitely built on, th- on the traditions of the Greeks. They focused on what they called liberal arts. They still don't have a set curriculum. That set curriculum actually came from a rather unlikely source, which was uh, in medieval times, the Catholic Church. Mm. And I call it unlikely because the early church was very much against studying the heathens or what's the pagans. word that would have used the pagans. for that? Pagans, yes. right, the pagans. Um, I was reading a early church writing that talked about, if you need poetry, read the Psalms. If you need history, read Kings. It's all there in the Bible. Um, however, Augustine, who if you studied church history, you'll be familiar with, he was a very, very influential early church father, was actually a rhetoric professor before his conversion. And so being a rhetoric professor, I'm sure had some influence in how influential he became. Mm -hmm. He kind of knew how to convince people of things. And he helped shift the church to a different position wherein they could take the skills of the pagans, they could take the education that the pagans had, and then apply it to studying the Bible. Well, and and I think it's important to note that Augustine was not from Greece or from Italy, not from Rome. Uh, he was North African. So part of his, uh, his draw towards the Greek and Roman classics was this sense on his part that he belonged to this greater, bigger tradition that he was on the edges of. 
and he wanted mm. to he wanted to grab it. He wanted to grab onto it with both hands and make it part of himself and make himself part of it. And I think that's always been an aspect of classical education is people saying, I want to belong to this tradition. I want to enter into it. Mm -hmm. I want to take what's good in it. And Augustine believed that what was good in the Greek and Roman tradition could also be good in the Christian tradition. Right. And so it was with him that this shift came where Christian theologians and scholars began to try to reconcile the ideas of Aristotle and Plato with Christian theology. And and in that began to translate Greek texts into Latin. And these texts started to become the very first, what you might call textbooks of a Christian priest's education. And eventually Boethius, I might be pronouncing that wrong. Boethius, that's correct. Um, Boethius, he was a translator and he was the guy who put these ideas together into the trivium and the quadrivium. They'd kind of trickled down. There had started to be different Catholic universities, um, but he, he coined those terms terms and they quickly caught on and became the basic curriculum for Catholic priests. So we should back up just a little bit and say that part mm -hmm. of the reason why this idea of a classical education became so dominant in the West, in Europe is what we're talking about right now, is because after the collapse of the Roman Empire, there was no longer a central government, a central organizing force, a central law and order that would take care of education for your children. I mean, let alone right. feeding them and keeping them from getting murdered by, you know, marauders coming through. The breakdown of the Roman Empire meant that there was no longer a central governmental structure. So the Christian church took over the task of education because the Roman Empire wasn't doing it anymore. The Byzantine Empire still existed, but at the time that we're talking about, their influence was mostly to the east of the Mediterranean. So the European countries, which had once been part of the Roman Empire, were kind of on their own. The church stepped in and said, okay, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> we don't have schools anymore. We don't have classical academies anymore. But goodness gracious, we have to be able to read the Bible. What shall we do? And so churches stepped in and established what were known as cathedral schools, which were schools where boys, pretty much exclusively boys, could learn how to read the Bible. And that was what sort of... Uh, preserved the tradition of classical education in the centuries after the collapse of the Roman Empire was cathedral schools saying, whatever else goes wrong, we got to be able to teach boys how to read the Bible because otherwise we will lose track of salvation and everything will be lost. The apocalypse will be upon us. Right. So those were the schools that were really responsible for preserving the Latin and Greek education. Right. And Catholicism was like you mentioned, a, a political force through the Middle Ages. It was a huge, uh, it had a huge influence on the development of Western civilization. And so because this was the way the cathedral schools worked, that trickled down into how university uh, curricula were organized. So universities, you would study the seven liberal arts. And so that then proceeded to influence for hundreds of years how universities worked and thus what students were trained to be able to do. You had to learn Latin, even in the early Republic, you had to learn Latin to be able to go to university to study at that level. So it just continued to trickle down on through the Renaissance and um, the Enlightenment and well, forward. Mm -hmm. 
we might say trickled up, that it trickled up from the cathedral schools up to the higher level of education, right. because for a number of centuries, there were only three things that you could get a university degree in. And they were theology, because you needed to know how to not go to hell, law, because you needed to know how to keep your property if your neighbor tried to take it away, and medicine, because you needed to not die. Those were the three degrees that you could get in a medieval university. And as we move on into the 15th and 16th century, one of the things that gets added to that is astronomy and physics because of all of the discoveries of what's going on mm. uh, in the skies. And then when the printing press comes along and changes everything, which I think we're going to talk about next, right. at that point, the fields of studies begin to expand. But let's just not forget that for centuries, everything that you were doing either in your secondary school or in university was based on the preservation of this ancient Latin and Greek body of knowledge. Right. And that body of knowledge was expanded or made more widely available because of the printing press. So when Gutenberg's printing mm. press became available, then there were more options for what you could study because there were more books available and you didn't have to rely so <laughs> on the one priest in town who could read. And that grew to um, the speeches of Cicero, for example, were translated and people started studying them more. And the humanists of the the Renaissance became really interested in his writings and in other Latin authors. And so this tradition of learning Latin to study those works just grew and became an even bigger part of a Western education. Well, and there's so much that we haven't covered here. And if you'd like to know more about it, I not to be self-serving, I would refer you to any of the books that I've written because there's a whole thing that happens here with Latin and Greek works being inaccessible until the 14th century when there were certain priests who managed to get into libraries in Spain, in which was then held by Islamic empires, which were more friendly towards translating them into different languages. There's a whole history here that uh, we won't go into because it would take us forever, but I do recommend to you the history of the medieval world, the story of science, which I've written if you want to know more about that. I think we should take a big jump forward, Susanna. Let's to, do it. Because we are Americans <laughs> to America. Let's talk, Let's about, talk America. about America. We'll be back after this. If history is boring for your children, you're doing it wrong. History isn't boring. It's not a club to bash your political enemies with, and it's not a pointless list of names and dates. It's a story with pirates and Vikings and princesses, and it's all true. Susan Wise Bauer's world history series, The Story of the World, has turned over a million kids into history nerds. Her engaging narrative will make your children ask for just one more chapter. The Story of the World is available at welltrainedmind.com or wherever you buy books or audiobooks. All right. So the pilgrims come here and what happens then? All right. So, well, I don't know much. Actually, I don't know much about the pilgrim education, although I would assume that it was very much um, centered on learning to read the Bible. It was very it was a very traditional sort of 
the Puritans would hate me saying this, but it was a very traditional cathedral school education. Yes. Right. With that same emphasis of needing to develop virtue and learn to read the Bible. By the time that the U.S. was getting started with the founding fathers, as I mentioned before, we know that, that most of them were influenced by what we might call a classical education and that they were studying the ideas and the works of Roman and Greek authors. But I think that it's important as we talk about American history and and education. I've heard this idea that all education in America was classical education until like the 1900s. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer because a little bit bit. America has one of the most decentralized education systems that a major world power has even now. But back then it was really decentralized. Yes. So it's important to not equate New England, for example, with the universities there, you have what we now call the Ivy League schools. Students going there had to be prepared for a classical education. They had to learn Latin. And so things looked a little bit more European, more traditional there. Um, The first public school in the U.S. is Boston Latin. It was started in the 1600s. I think it's still running as a classical school today. So there's a lot of classical influence on the East Coast and in those major cities. But with folks moving west, which was a huge part of our history, education was really anyone's game. I think we forget. Okay, we say we forget. I'm talking to you Northeasterners right now. If you're listening to this and you live in the Northeast Corridor, anywhere within an hour's drive of I-95, that is not actually the United States. It is one small part of the U.S. And students who studied in these Northeastern classically based academies did in fact receive sort of a traditional European education. But part of the reason why they received that education is because families that moved into these new urban centers in the original colonies, once they were established, tended to be pretty well off, relatively prosperous. They could afford to pay for their passage. They could afford to go and live in a new country that didn't have any industry yet because they had family money. So sometimes, and maybe this is part of what the gentleman who was on MSNBC was talking about, I think sometimes what we associate with classical education is this sort of like highbrow, Northeastern, mostly white, very prep school, traditional, we're all wearing ties and little plaid skirts way of learning that was just true of one small part of the country. Because if we were to go west of what's now the I-95 corridor, what was going on out there, Susanna? Well, in that, well, it was called the Wild West for a reason. Oh, yeah. You had to get your education where you could get it. That could be anything from the living room. You had dame schools where women would get together and create a school in their homes, one room schoolhouses, churches. You were learning the basics for survival, reading, writing, arithmetic, how to keep the farm going as you're moving west <laughs> out Deliver of the I-95. <laughs> right. And But it is interesting that even though those schools, you really could hardly call them classical, there were still ideas that I think were fairly common in them that I would say link to some of the best ideas of a classical education. For example, in a one-room schoolhouse, you have all ages in one room, which means that as a student, you weren't necessarily limited to 
being in one grade for every subject. Right. You could progress naturally with your development academically. You um, you weren't limited in that way. There was still, if you watch movies with one-room schoolhouses, you'll see a lot of memorization happening with younger students. You'll see dictation and narration. Mm-hmm. One reason for that is that even though there wasn't a set curriculum, there were these books that were very popular like the McGuffey Readers and the Blueback Speller by Mm -hmm. Noah Webster. And those books had passages. They had Aesop's fables in them. They had passages from great writers that students engaged with and memorized. They taught reading through phonics. And so even though there was a wide variety of what you would engage with, there were still these principles that had been gleaned from just the traditions of hundreds of years. I agree. And I also think that there was a dynamic there between teacher and student that was classical, which is when you have a one room schoolhouse, you have one teacher who is the mentor, the discipler, who is bringing all of the students, you know, sort of behind. And it was mostly her behind her uh, to teach them. And they were looking to her and following her. So the dynamic between teacher and student was not that of what we would see now in an age graded classroom, which we're going to get to in a minute, where here's the third grade teacher telling the third grade students what to do. And they're listening, taking in that knowledge, mastering it, passing a test on it, moving on to the next grade when they'll have another teacher. But it was much more a dynamic of I am here to guide you. I'm here to shape you. Mm -hmm. I'm here so you can follow me. And you're all working at different levels. But what's important is that I'm going to be able to point you towards where you want to go. So it's a very different student to teacher relationship. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind when we're talking about classical education. The relationship between student and teacher is not of lecturer and pupil, but of Mm. disciple and discipler or mentor. And that was definitely true in the one-room schoolhouses. That's a really good point. There's another thing that I would say was very common in the understanding of what an education was at that time across America, especially if you look at these spellers and readers, is that education was for developing virtue and developing into good human beings. And I think that connects a lot to the classical tradition. And that is where things begin to really shift away from these classical principles in the 20th century. So in the 20th century, America was growing. There was immigrants coming in from all of these different countries. And there was a huge shift in the understanding of elites and education philosophers and Mm -hmm. theorists about what education was for. Is that something you could tell us a little bit about, Susan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think both Plato and Aristotle, and ironically, Aristotle, even to a much greater uh, degree than Plato, was really concerned about education being something that would produce a whole person, a virtuous person, a full person, a contented person. So Aristotle in his writings on education spends a lot of time just reflecting on this question of what what are we doing here? What is our purpose? And his purpose, uh, I, I mean, I think the, the sort of the clearest explanation of it is actually in rhetoric where he says, a full human being knows what he believes, I'm paraphrasing, and can tell you what he believes. He would have said he, because he didn't think women Mm. actually qualified, but we'll we'll 
give him that. He's a man of his times. Personally, very glad that changed. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, we can we can absorb the principle without the specifics of what Aristotle did. Right. Uh, but yeah, his his definition of a whole human being was someone who could not only know what they believed, but express it with confidence and with persuasiveness to someone else. So in Aristotle's view, that was a whole human being, someone who could express what and why he thought. Because for Aristotle, you didn't really know what you think until you can put it in words, which as a writing teacher, I 100% agree with. That's not what we were doing at the beginning of the 20th century, though, because here in this country, we had such a massive influx of immigrants. I mean, I you can turn me off now if you want, but I'm one of those people who thinks that we should have a wide gate when it comes to immigration, that immigration has always been a huge, huge influx of talent and humanity into our country. With immigrants coming into our country, the real challenge was, okay, you're the you're the one room schoolhouse teacher. And all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you've got 50 kids in your classroom and half of them don't speak English. What do you do? There's this real practical problem there, particularly in the urban areas. So the real puzzle in education was not how do you become a human being, but how do you become an American? Mm-hmm. Because we didn't have any way. I mean, Plato or Aristotle weren't never spent much time reflecting on what does it mean to be Greek? That just isn't even in what they do. Their concern was what does it mean to be a human being? In America in the early 20th century, we had a much more basic question, which was, what do we do? What do we do with these children? Um, how do we teach them to right. fit into this country? Right. So schools shifted the emphasis from they had education to. is to develop a person to education is kind of a, a way to develop citizens and is a way to have an effect on society. And two of the most influential educational theorists at the time were John Dewey and Mm -hmm. Horace Mann. Right. And I think that they've been rather vilified, at least in the homeschool community. I remember (laughs) growing up and anytime somehow John Dewey entered conversation, I just remember my mom going, oh, John Dewey. So I associated him as this evil man who ruined schools. I think that is a bit unfair. And so we're going to look a little bit into how Horace Mann and John Dewey changed the education system in the U.S., starting with Horace Mann, who wanted to help solve this problem that you were referring to. And in doing so, thought we should teach students how to be citizens. And he looked to Prussia to figure out how to do that, because Prussia was one of the first places that was experimenting with compulsory attendance at school, Mm -hmm. um, putting students into classrooms by age and kind of systematizing it in a way that fewer teachers could handle more students. Yeah. And yes, he was very he he was very impressed by the efficiency of the Prussian system. And you know what, uh, Susanna, it's so funny that you say that about John Dewey, because my mother, who has an education degree as well, had that same reaction to John Dewey. John Dewey, uh, did she? And, yeah. And and the thing is, is John, if, if I were to pick a villain, I'm not right. really a fan of picking villains. If I were to pick a villain in the American educational system, it would definitely be Horace Mann, not John okay. Dewey. And we could talk so, about that 
in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So Horace Mann went to Prussia Mm -hmm. in the early 20th century and was incredibly impressed. And he was the uh, he was the secretary of education for Philadelphia at the time. And Philadelphia was seeing one of the urban centers that was seeing a huge influx of immigrants. And he visited Prussia, I believe, in 1843. And he was so impressed by the Prussian educational system. Now, Let's be very clear on this. The whole point of the Prussian educational system was to prepare boys to go into the army. Prussia was, and and if you want to know more about this, go read the history of the Renaissance world. It's in there. I wrote about it. But Prussia was a very military-focused culture. And the purpose of the Prussian schooling system was to get boys ready to go into the army. So the Prussian educational system got boys ready to do this by putting them into age-graded classrooms with a single teacher, their commander, teaching them how to do all the same things at the same time, follow their teacher without question, everything that would get them ready to be, Mm -hmm. you know, good junior lieutenants in the Prussian army. And Horace Mann toured these Prussian schools. And if you want to know where this took Prussia, go to World War I and World War II. It was nowhere good. But Horace Mann was incredibly impressed by the efficiency of this system. And he came back to the United States saying, you know what? This is a way that we can organize these unruly hordes of immigrants. We can put them into age-graded classroom. All the nine-year-olds go Mm -hmm. here. All the 10-year-olds go here. All the 11-year-olds go here. Each one has a teacher, a quote-unquote commander that they have to listen Mm -hmm. to. They graduate, i.e. move up a rank and go to the next classroom. And it was very efficient um, Mm -hmm. because- you know, factory systems, which is what this was, are very efficient. So the curricula still had a lot of aspects of classicism in it. So there was still Mm -hmm. reading and writing and arithmetic and history and geography and grammar and all that stuff. There was still an emphasis on moral education. But Horace Mann's adoption of the Prussian system became, because it was efficient, the way that all of these overwhelmed urban areas could figure out how to fold these immigrants into the system. And it's the system that we're still living with today. And in so many ways, that particular innovation just militates against classical education. It doesn't right. encourage conversation, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't you don't converse with your superior officer. You just say yes, sir, right? Or yes, right. ma'am. You jo- you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to grapple with moral ambiguities. You're not allowed to learn and understand. You are required to obey, right? And that is just so antithetical. And it just it it always surprises me that Horace Mann is not the big villain in American education. Seems like he needs a little bit more, gets, deserves a little more gruff. Yeah. The, when you hear people talking about how the school system is preparing kids for factories and, and churning out students that are all supposed to end up the same versus creative, that all comes from the Horace Mann Prussian system. And it's in direct contrast, talk, hearing you talk about this system, I'm thinking about how you described the mentor relationship that is so key to a classical education that existed in the one-room schoolhouse, because that's where that ended. That kind of the way that students related to teachers, the way that schools were set up, that shifted with Horace 
Mann. I think the John Dewey changes might be, if I had to characterize Horace Mann changed the school system, John Dewey influenced the curriculum a lot more in what he felt should be taught and how it should be taught. So John Dewey was actually opposed to man. Mm-hmm. He, he believed that it was really important to train students to become good citizens for a democracy to work. And for that to work, they had to be independent thinkers. They had to be creative. They had to be in charge even of their own learning. But in the American system, they were supposed to be passive. Like you said, people who obeyed, people who were trained to be good factory workers. In the Horace and, Mann system. And we should say that Dewey's about 50 years later than Horace Mann. So right. by the time he comes along, the Horace Mann inspired system is sort of in full. It's it's working at full steam. Right. And so John Dewey is in so many ways a contrast or almost a reaction to Horace Mann. Why do you think he gets such a bad rap in the homeschool world? It's Well, I think there are two reasons. I think, first of all, uh, unlike Horace Mann, he was an outspoken atheist. And being an outspoken atheist in America does not tend to serve you well. Um, right. it, it's going to make people upset. I don't know that his outspoken atheism necessarily affected the way he talked about education. And now that I've said that, I'm sure we'll, we'll get messages. Um, of course it did. But he really wanted students to think for themselves and his atheism was part of his own thinking for himself. I think that mm-hmm. I think that for conservative educators in particular and this includes many original home educators, maybe not so much now, but certainly over the last three decades, people who are home educating have not encouraged a challenge to authority. And Dewey was all about challenging authority. He didn't think that you should study something if you didn't know why you were studying it. Mm. He thought that a student should have the right to say to a teacher, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't see any point unless the teacher could show a good reason for it. I actually think that's pretty close to the ethos of classical education. I think I think one of Dewey, Dewey had a bit of a... Um, what we might call a PR problem, which is that he he was opposed to more things than he was a champion of. <laughs> so gotcha. He, yeah. So he was he was a tearer down, not a builder up. And uh, it's easier and to tear down, I have to say. It's it easier is, to tear down than provide solutions. It is easier. And and I think a lot of what we see in public schools today that you and I, I think Susanna would agree doesn't work is perhaps Dewey influenced in terms of, Mm -hmm. no, we're not going to just do phonics. Why should we do that? Why would that work? We're not going to do that rote work. No, we're not going to have a set curriculum because that just turns children into factory workers. The problem there is that you've got to replace the thing that you don't want to do with something positive and productive. And I don't know that Dewey did a very good job of articulating what that should be. So mm. what we've ended up with, I feel like, is these sort of horseman and flyer inspired classrooms, mm-hmm. which are single age, very rigid, very inflexible, combined with a Dewey inspired rejection of old methods, almost for the sake of rejecting the old methods, not because mm. the methods being rejected have been shown to be ineffective. And so maybe that brings us up to the 
you know, beginning of the 20th century and perhaps even Charlotte Mason. Right. So that it, it kind of leaves education in a, in a rather sad spot in a way where you've got this the a toxic yeah. mix of of maybe their worst ideas come to play and really be adopted quickly across the the US. I mean this yeah. is when I was teaching in public school I definitely saw what you were talking about with just almost the extreme of Dewey's ideas. Um mm-hmm. for example Dewey Dewey was kind of don't force kids to just rotely memorize too much stuff. Um let them be more creative but then if you take that to the extreme and there's no memorization, then you're missing basic facts by the time you get into the logic stage or anyway. So I've seen this in play, but thankfully there has been a rebirth. And you mentioned Charlotte Mason as, as John Dewey and Horace Mann were to the more structured public school system, Charlotte Mason was to the uh, less traditional classroom education and homeschoolers. She had a major influence. And to parents in particular. Right. Yeah. Um, She was a British educator who was trying to correct certain trends that she saw in the education system. A few of those things were that she noticed that only wealthy children were receiving a liberal education while poorer students were being taught trade skills and sent into the workforce earlier without a rich education. And that reminds me of what you said earlier about, you know, the Northeast and this idea that classical education is for the rich and privileged. And she noticed that and she said, no, that's that's not what it should be. All children benefit from being educated. Um, She also noticed that teaching had become overregulated and that students were being not their whole being wasn't being addressed. Their whole self. Right. Which which definitely Plato and Aristotle, because something that definitely falls out of the curriculum as you move on with with man and Dewey is the idea that, oh, people should move. <laughs> they should get mm. up. They should get out of their seats. They should touch things. They should go outside. And she brought that, which is a, definitely a very platonic and Aristotelian virtue. Uh, so right. she kind of brought that back into teaching. Yeah. When I was teaching in public school in the middle of COVID, we had just started coming back a little bit very carefully with masks only one third of students at a time and I wanted to take my kids outside and the administration said no that's not safe and I was thinking outside is the safest place to be be. I know right Charlotte Mason would have loved you (laughs) but what they meant was that they didn't trust the students those students were they they came in and sat in their classroom at 845, we monitored their transition in the hallways between classes. They were expected to move silently in the hallways from class to class and then sit for another 45 minutes. They were treated like prisoners. I mean, it was really, really hard for me to believe that they were going to be fully open to learning and exploring and getting excited about everything when they had been sitting for six hours straight by the time they got to my fourth block. Yeah, no. And, you know, I have to say that as the mother of three boys and then daughter on the on the end of it, but the three boys, I cannot imagine having children be inside and still for that long. And Charlotte Mason would 100 percent have agreed that this was an overregulation. But of course, what Charlotte Mason was seeing. So let's make this distinction because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. She's British. The British at this point were not seeing the same challenge in terms of an influx of immigrants. That came Mm -hmm. for the British later. So in the U.S., I think we were dealing with 
a a challenge that the British had yet to see. Right. What do you do with these numbers of people? And I have to say it's a you know, it's a problem that remains unaddressed in a lot of urban schools now. Right. But she did have the luxury to say, okay, <laughs> let's go outside and move around and nurture the whole mm-hmm. person. Let's not just think about citizens. Let's think about the whole person. Right. And that's, and again, that's not every, even now, these ideas, Charlotte Mason ideas, Maria Montessori ideas, there's been ideas that have trickled into um, the U.S. public school system where we're still kind of grappling with how to handle this issue of, of helping students become citizens and dealing with huge amounts of students. But I think there are things that they're experimenting with. I worked at an experimental public Montessori school and it was a world of difference. You still had classrooms, but there was a little bit more mixed ages. There was a little bit more, there was a lot more going outside. Um, a lot more freedom of movement for students. So these are things that are even today being experimented with and built into the system, but it's a very, you know, it's a difficult problem. Sure, sure. Well, and then that brings us up to, and I think this is probably where we should end, Susanna, uh, Mm -hmm. or end or begin the next episode. That brings us up to Dorothy Sayers, 1947 essay called The Lost Tools of Learning. And you know, Sayers had been educated uh, at, oh gosh, I'm going to say it wrong. It was either Oxford or Cambridge, and whichever one I say will be wrong, and then people will be up in arms. Oxbridge. Can I just say Oxbridge? That's, that works. That's safe. Okay. That's where she was educated. And, um, and so she had been the beneficiary of an education which was very classical in the sense of being based on the medieval Renaissance model, which was in turn based on the Greek and Roman model. So we'll call this classical at three removes. And I think it's important to remember, um, and we'll, we will pick up this again in our next episode. I think it's important to remember that Sayers was not a parent and she was not a teacher, but she was, she was a really clear thinker. She had Mm -hmm. ideas about education, and she had read a great deal about educational psychology and how children's minds develop. And what she did was she took the medieval Renaissance idea of the trivium and quadrivium, and she mapped it onto these ideas having to do with the intellectual development of individual students. And that is where we then begin with what I would call modern neoclassical education, which really focuses on the trivium, the grammar, logic, and rhetoric stages. And that is where things really start to get wild and woolly, because we're going to have to talk about Doug Wilson and the neo-Confederacy and white supremacy, all kinds of things. Uh Uh-oh. It's going to get interesting. Yes. Um, yeah. So this essay, this one essay sparked what you might say a, a resurgence of classical education. And that was for multiple groups, for Douglas Wilson, yeah. for homeschoolers. There was secular movements as well, um, trying to get it into public schools. But unfortunately, we don't have time for that today. We are going to get into that nitty gritty where classical education is going in our next episode. And we will tell you why it, I, you know what? The, the sad thing is we can get into this in our next episode, Susanna, is I really don't want the phrase classical education to become a dog whistle for mm-hmm. white supremacy or a particular type of history that doesn't 
look at racial injustice or other difficult things. I write history. It's what I do. History is full of really awful things. I have a horrible feeling that's where we're headed, but maybe Mm -hmm. you and I can do our best to uh, right the ship. Right. It does feel that the well-trained mind press is kind of fighting to keep the term alive and meaning what we want it to mean. <laughs> I know, point. I know. That's I, I hate to tell you that sometimes I feel like that's a that's a losing battle. But I don't know if we can't keep classical education alive, maybe we can come up with another term that yeah, will become we, identified with us. And if you have another term, you can always email us at podcast at welltrainedminds.com. Yes, please do. Help, join us, the discussion. help us rebrand. <laughs> right. But to close out, I think this whole discussion is just another reminder that classical education, if you see a textbook or a curriculum with classical education slapped onto it, it is not a term that comes with a regulatory body that controls <laughs> what that means. There's no, it's not USD organic. It doesn't mean anything specific. It can mean so many different things at so many different times. And we're going to get into that more. But for those of you at home, look up your classical school, look up your classical curriculum, ask questions and try to figure out what type of classical education they are talking about. Click on that about button and find out who they reference and how they define classical education and stick with us. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at welltrainedmind.com and we will be back with our next episode very soon. Bye.